welcome to episode 110 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. What happens when we get to episode 360 of UConn 360? <laughs> the rate we're going to really think that that will happen while you and I are, are here. You never know. I don't know. You never know. Now we have help. We do. Now we have help with people producing great stuff, which we're going to talk about today. Yes, we are. I'm very but, thankful for that. Which is an incredible segue on my part. But before we get to that... <laughs> Early segue. Premature segue. Premature segue. We've got some, some new... Well, by the way, I'm Tom Breen. I, I, work, <laughs> I work at UConn. <laughs> Julie Bartuga also works at UConn, and she's also here. Hi, you Julie. You know us by now. If you don't know us by now... Yeah, this is your first never, episode. you ever, ever know us. This is, it's weird if this is your first episode, frankly. Could be. But we always start with some news, and we've got some exciting news. Yeah. Do you want to start with the, the most exciting news? I guess probably the most exciting news. And, and by the time you hear this, everyone will know this, but there is a new dog in town. How many times has that line been used in <laughs> reference to? Well, I mean, 15, I guess, at least at most. <laughs> at most, yeah. Because we, Jonathan the 15th has been introduced to the, the world crazy. at a board of trustees meeting. Uh, at the end of the, June. Just the place to introduce the dog. Well, and he's, he's, he's an adorable little fella. He has like a Batman mask. He has the cutest little mask. He's adorable. Yeah. And don't worry, Jonathan 14 is still going to be fulfilling some of his duties as he eases into emeritus status. Yeah, and similar to his older bro. Exactly. And, yeah. and and 15 gets comfortable in the role. So by the time students get back, of course, he'll be big because the Huskies Oh my gosh. Grow I can imagine how big he's going to get so quick. By leaps and bounds. But we have lots and lots of pictures of him online, our social media, UConn Today, and you can see how adorable he is. Leaps. Welcome, Jonathan the 15th. Leaps and Bones. Oh. oh, oh. I didn't come up with that. It's, just, it's the name of a pet. Uh, pet goods store. Let's just put that on pause. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bark at me, Tom. Oh. Jeez. All right. We I'm lost done. our entire I'm listenership. So done. I'm done. I'm done. Now let's talk about money. Yeah. While we're talking about exciting stuff, UConn Waterbury and UConn Stanford are pioneering what is known as the UConn Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources Fellows Program using a $4.5 million grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Institute of Food and Agriculture. This is a really cool initiative. It'll sponsor about 30 undergraduate student fellows at both campuses, and it's an effort to train the next generation of agriculture, health, and natural resources professionals, as many of those at the federal level are slated to retire in coming years. The USDA is pushing to increase diversity and its workforce in these areas, and Stanford and Waterbury were prioritized for this support because they're both considered Hispanic-serving institutions and have high levels of diversity. Very cool. Yeah. And in other money news. Yes. We're going to get some sound effects of like a cash register going yes. cha-ching. Cha-ching. Yeah. Uh, it's not in the budget. A team of researchers led by Sandra Trefulius and Marlene Schwartz, who's with the Red Center, has received $2 million from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for a project that aims to protect and improve the health and well-being of children and adolescents, which is a very exciting effort. We talked to Professor Trefulius about this model that they're going to be using on episode 78 of UConn 360 and obviously with what's been going on with COVID-19 and just the general changes in how students and young people are kind of dealing with the world and coping. I think this is really exciting. The funding will support their work with Connecticut schools and school districts to implement their whole school, whole community, whole child model, which recognizes that student health and well-being include physical, emotional, social, and behavioral dimensions, and that health is closely connected to academic achievement. So congratulations to them. Very, very cool. Yeah, those stories really kind of show some of the maybe less understood benefits that UConn brings to the state, but stuff like that happens all the time. Less understood, but highly impactful and highly important. Yes. Yeah, very good news all around. 
So going back to my segue from earlier. <laughs> good, good one. Very good. Yeah. Uh, we have – our guest is actually sitting here with us very patiently th- enduring our banter. <laughs> enduring is the perfect word for what she, what she appears to be doing. And this is special for two reasons. One, it's a colleague of ours. Second, it's a colleague who has actually produced our interview yeah. for this episode. So I would like to introduce to the, the UConn 360 fandom out there. Elena Hancock from the news department. Elena, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show and for offering to produce this segment. It's a really interesting interview with a a prominent faculty member. I think a lot of people will know him. Tell us a bit about what you talked about with Professor Robert Thorson. We talked about the Anthropocene. Or no, Anthropocene. Sorry. He pointed out that I pronounce it with the British pronunciation. It's all right. Aren't you married to a British person? So you can be excused. It's it's just a mess. Pronunciations (laughs) are all over the place. Do you call it the loo? We have a water closet in the room, and yeah. (laughs) Back to Professor Thorson. Yes. Yeah, Professor Thorson and I talked about the Anthropocene, and it's being designated now, and it's kind of a big deal happening, and I was just interested in bringing attention to it for the listeners. And this is a a way of sort of reckoning with geologic time, right? So previously we were in, correct me if I'm wrong, the Holocene. And this is the idea that we have these epochs that are defined by, well, in this case, it's defined by people, which is sort of new, right? That the characteristics, things that are having the the biggest impact on our world is human activity. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And this is a very, it's it's not universally accepted, right? Designating this. Yeah. But it's anticipated to be formally recognized. And yeah, they're just... They're mulling over, like, what exactly to use as the definitions, and it seems like they're coming to the consensus that it's going to be, like, the atomic bomb testing that happened in the 40s and 50s. Oh, interesting. And I know you've written about this for UConn Today. That's yes. today.uconn.edu, folks. <laughs> and there's a class at which you talk about with Professor Thorson that yep. focuses on this. You talk about it with Professor Thorson, but what did you take away from the conversation with him about sort of how to think about these changes in the world? It's hard to articulate into just a few sentences, but just I think my main takeaway was if we're this driving force of like the biogeochemical cycles Mm -hmm. in the planet, we also have the power or the ability to to do good things as well. So it's not just doom and gloom. Yeah, I'm interested in, in maybe it changing the way people think about things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you start to think about the incredible effect that human activity now has in the world. It's humbling in a way, but also sort of encouraging because if we've made it bad, we can also make it good. I'm just sitting here in awe of that I work with people who use words like biogeochemical and (laughs) yeah. So Lena and the doom and gloom thing is Lena covers a lot of climate change stuff. That's kind of her her real sweet spot and real interest. And so that is really nice for you to have. (laughs) A little bit of hope in the stuff that you're talking about. I need it. I do. (laughs) So Professor Thorson, for those of you who don't know, is a professor of earth sciences. He's kind of a famed professor here. He's been, you know, he's written things for UConn Magazine. He's been interviewed all over the place. And he's he's a really popular guy if you don't know him yet, but you will meet him. A lot of people may know him as an expert, perhaps the expert on stone walls in New England. Mm -hmm. New Mm -hmm. England's characteristic stone walls. But there's there's much more to his research. and, And you'll hear it in this segment coming up. Right now. Just like we have standard units of measure for things like weight and distance, we also have standard units of measure for deep time called epics. Think the Paleocene, the Pleistocene, or most recently the Holocene. A new epic 
is being considered by scientists, except this one is called the Anthropocene, to signify the impacts our species has had on the world. Epics are defined by dramatic and novel global changes, and scientists are working together to decide exactly which parameters define the Anthropocene and when this epic started. There is much debate and some disagreement, and this proposed designation faces some criticism. I sat down with UConn professor of Earth Sciences, Robert Thorson, who helped create and now teaches a course on the Anthropocene, to learn more about the issues behind this new epic to help us better understand what it all means. When I use the word Anthropocene, I use it in two ways. This is probably important. Informally, it just refers to human impact on the planet. Stratigraphically, it has to refer to whatever global standard we come up with. But the public isn't really going to care about all that. You know, that matters to geologists, the people who keep and maintain the standards. If you just go away from environment and politics and just be a geologist for a while, this is the origin of this, and it's exciting. You're just a geologist, and you're looking at the wall of a canyon or something like that. Geologic time is not a continuous flow. It's pulsed. Yes, time accumulates, just like the second hand on a clock. But um, as we have revolutions and we have episodes of time, there are pulses of change. And that's just the way Earth history is. And things are normal, and then there's a transformation, then they're, then they're back to normal again. Uh, or there's something usually different. And normal is a new normal. If you look at the geologic time scale, I haven't counted them, but there's well over 100 epochs. Each one we understand as a, like the Renaissance or Jim Crow. We understand that's a time period that may have fuzzy boundaries, but it, it carries the, the implication of, of what's there. Or the Industrial Revolution. You know, there are periods of time, and it, it's always messy and sloppy. Or the Space Age. So we know what those are like. Um, and we know they're real. And geologic history is the same. Just like the U.S. Bureau of Standards has standards for for uh, temperature and currency and measurements and weight and all of that, you know, geologists have to have its standards. And the standards are, this is the archetype, or this is the stratotype, or this is the place, or this is the golden spike. You know, that if you want to correlate, you correlate to this thing. See, so that becomes our standard. Those are the base of every every unit. So what happened is, is that when people began investigating, usually with sediment cores or with, well, really any phenomenon that is accumulating geology, all right, what you will see is a almost nothing until mid-20th century. So we know that there are profound and serious impacts and makeovers, but they're all regional. You don't even spot them in the ice core record, except a faint whiff of more methane here, or a, a few parts per billion of lead dust when the Romans started smelting. Yes, you can see the signal. There is a global signal, but it's weak. You see, it doesn't really change what's happening in the taiga of the Soviet Union when the Romans are smelting, or when Machu Picchu is being built. There's no change. You get to the 1950s, and we have a global signal, but dramatic change. The rise of plastic, the rise of concrete, the rise of carbonaceous particles, the rise of new minerals, the rise of just about every damn thing, you know, is post-World War II, you know, manufacturing and population growth, which is the result of food supply, which is the result of medicine, which is the result of whatever. So all of this circumstance of being able to fix nitrogen for more food and grow better crops, the Green Revolution, combined with, you know, better medical control of contagious disease, 
And then, of course, there's this emulation of the Western lifestyle, and a capitalism loves this. You know, it just loves it because now it can feed and control the great demand. And it's all petroleum-based. And it's really petroleum-based. It's almost all petroleum-based. I think the official designation will mean a lot to geologists because it will just finally be settled. But we are so close to having it settled that we know it will go that way. It's just a matter of, you know, of having it happen. It's just a committee decision, like the United Nations, the International Geological, uh, International Union of Geological Scientists. It goes way back. But the, the artists have already picked up on this. You know, media culture has gone on it already, and, and it's, it's already a huge meme. It's beginning to replace the word environmentalism. Whatever it becomes called will replace the word environment. Because the environment is too local, it's too regional, it's too loaded with historic baggage. Call it a paradigm shift. You know, where we're basically moving away from a focus on us, them, natural, unnatural, human impact. In my Anthropocene course, I always spin impact in two directions, but the culture uniformly makes it negative. You know, it's an environmental impact. We're sitting in a room that isn't, you know, we don't have the wind blowing on us, and we're getting a nicer recording because we're, we're in and out. We've created this. Mm-hmm. That's an impact, and it's positive. There is a positive aspect. We don't do stuff to make it worse. We do stuff to make it better. Human beings want nothing more than any other species wants, and that's to be safe, have food, take care of their young, pass on the torch. That's all we're doing. And so we're not being evil. We're just being us. We're being a species, but that's the primitive species brain trapped inside of the the evolved brain, you know, that we can't overcome. But we have to find a better way that's less energy draining. I'm wondering, like, if you perceive any sort of backfire from centering the the naming of this epic after humans. Of course, of course. Oh, yeah, that exists. People say, how arrogant to name an epic after yourself. That argument is totally fine. You know, why should we name an epic after ourselves? Well, the answer is because we become the dominant biogeochemical agency operating on the planet. There was a really nice study done about 10 years ago. And what somebody tried to do was sum all of the mass being moved by agencies. And they looked at the average amount of mass moved by the ice sheets in the last 2 million years. And they got something like 15 gigatons per year. I mean, you could calculate. An ice might move 50 meters and there's a certain volume of sediment that comes after a certain period of time. You could come up with that. But it was, it was 15 gigatons per year for a couple million year average for the ice, ice age. If you look at the geologic record, meaning going back to where we can look at stratified rocks and, you know, what's the volume, what's the material loss, you know, do the stoichiometry, do the chemistry, do the gains and losses, you know, and you could calculate how much material is being moved. It's about 5 gigatons per year from the time of the Cambrian, you know, from the, we begin to get animals. And human beings, using the power of fossil fuel, turns out the global average is 75 gigatons per year. So what it means is that human beings are moving material on the planet five times more rapidly than the glaciers. And they're moving it 15 times more rapidly than the average for the, for the time period that we have a good record for in the last half billion years. So what that means is we are geologic agents. So if we're that important, this is a novel change in Earth history. We've never had anything like this, and we're in it. 
So we need to have a new epic. It's not that we want to name a new epic. It's not that we're trying to praise ourselves or criticize ourselves. We just don't have any choice because the rules of geology are that when you have a dramatic and novel change across a boundary, you create a new epic. That's the Anthropocene. Of the 39 people on the committee, I think only four were holdouts. And I understand their reservations. If you name an epic after human beings, it means we really have changed the planet. Okay? And most people don't want to admit that. So the implication will be, I think it's already kind of there, a ripple effect. All we're trying to do is pick the site that will be the best one to represent, the transition. The key thing about the Anthropocene as opposed to Southwest cultures or or Mesoamerica or the rise and fall of the Roman Empire or Egyptian uh, civilizations or African civilizations rise and fall. I mean, all of these places have their have their story of civilization, but they're local. I mean, you can think of it as local. I mean, the Mediterranean is local relative to the size of that globe. For geologists, epics are global. You don't have an Eocene epic in North America and, and another epic going on at the same time in Australia. The other thing is that the record has to show dramatic change at a global level. And so these are the records they're using. Spheroidal carbonaceous particles. There's a unique particle that is not made by burning wood and burning forests and natural coal fires. It's high energy combustion, high temperature combustion, plutonium isotopes. Everything is radioactive. It's just a matter of concentration. And then the carbon-14, there was a dramatic excursion from all the uh, bomb testing. And then the nitrogen isotopes, you know, that's from creating synthetic nitrate and completely disrupting the biogeochemical cycles. That's, you know, so then rapid change and peak. So the peak rate of change is what's implicit in the idea of an epoch. Getting back to the Anthropocene, the idea is we would have to admit we really changed the planet. When I teach the course, the Anthropocene, I insist that we end it by looking back on the present as a paleontology of the present, with the fundamental question being, were we being good ancestors? Though that clip ended on a somewhat somber note, Thorson says the students in his Anthropocene classes are oftentimes reassured in their knowledge and understanding of the topics and nuances, showing the importance of learning and communicating about these issues. He says his takeaway is that if humans are powerful enough to transform the globe in serious, inadvertent ways, we are powerful enough to ameliorate and adapt to some of the changes. Will this designation help more people realize our global impact? Hopefully. But in the meantime, keep an eye out for the news about the official designation and keep doing whatever you can to be a good ancestor. That was really interesting. Robert Thorson, very prominent faculty members we talked about, but it was neat to also introduce our listeners to Lena. Yeah, it, it was like a very meta guest within a guest yeah. situation we just had right here. We're postmodern. <laughs> it's kind of like, this is like our Inception episode. <laughs> very similar to that exactly like that no but that was really neat and thanks again Elena hopefully that won't be her last piece yeah. for us hopefully we'll be hearing more from her okay so I have an interesting this is a real quirky one and I could not find any a quirky what Tom oh it's a we're at Tom's history bus stop okay choo 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 <laughs> is that what buses make is that the noise buses make yep <laughs> As Jack would say, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> there we go. You guys didn't see my hand motions. But it was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could not find any trace of this online, which is killing me because I would love to see this. In 1997, in a segment that I would like to call Lights, Camera, Waterbury. Oh, boy. But was actually called From the Campus, 
UConn Waterbury launched its own public access television show. All right. I can get down with this. This is from the September 1997 issue of The Advance. Mm -hmm. Stuart Brown, who was at the time assistant to the dean of students, was the host. And he would walk around campus and he said, when I walk around, people begin to flee because I know I'm going to ask them to be on the program. (laughs) Is he... Do I know that person? Is Stuart Brown the guy who does that Broadway show thing? Yeah, Stuart Brown. I th- we've talked about I it think, on this. Did Ken interview him? Yeah, I think you're right. Possibly. We'll look into that. We'll look into that. <laughs> but clearly, Stuart Brown has a flair for showbiz. Yeah. Because he hosted this program, which at the time aired on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. on WCAT-TV, which I think was local Waterbury. Mm-hmm. It allowed the campus's faculty, staff, and students to present issues and topics of interest to the community. One of the shows, for example, discussed radon in the water system, and another featured three students talking about their transition from high school to college. Oh, that's nice. Um, We do that. Stuart Brown said, this is the only venue that reaches a wide audience, and it doesn't cost us money. Newspaper ads are expensive. We do college fair visits, high school visits, and open houses, but those cannot beat a 30-minute weekly show, which is basically a commercial for the campus. However... No offense to Stuart Brown. Do people watch public access television? Well, this was 1997. Yeah, I guess they did. Yeah. More often back then. All I picture ever now is Between Two Ferns. Like, I can't (laughs) not picture Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. The the show was eventually picked up by Cox Cable and Telemedia, so it went out uh, all over the place. And uh, yeah, at the time, you know, because notice when he's talking about how to spread the word, he says newspaper ads. Right. Because in 1997. Yeah, there wasn't a lot. There was no social media. There weren't a lot of ways to... And young people today might not be aware of public access, but there was a law created by Congress that for cable companies, because they had a monopoly. Mm -hmm. So they had to create channels that the public had essentially free access to, to put anything you wanted. And like, depending on where you were, some of the public access shows got got pretty saucy. 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 Like New York City had like famously like sex workers and stuff doing their own shows. Okay. I myself... Did a public access show. I think you should have put a little more air in between the two topics. (laughs) It was not saucy. It was a parody ghost hunting show. (gasps) That's fun. Yeah, I I co-hosted it with someone who actually now works for the registrar's office. Okay. This was when we were both in college. And That's fabulous. we portrayed two incompetent and cowardly ghost hunters traveling all over Connecticut trying to find ghosts. My husband was on the show Ghost Hunters. I was literally showing my Uncle Barry this video yesterday. The Hartford Conservatory was where my husband went to school. Okay. It used to be a music school. It doesn't really exist anymore. I think they teach music lessons now, but they thought it was haunted. And Jordan was the student council president, so he wrote to Ghost Hunters. He didn't think it was haunted. He was a skeptic. But they edited out all the parts where he was skeptical sure. on the show and made him seem like a really big believer in ghosts. <laughs> and they said it was inconclusive. They couldn't decide whether it was haunted or not. It'd be really funny if they like debunked it and they just had the parts where it looked like he believed. And they're like, contrary to this student, doesn't know anything. <laughs> Wow, that's really neat. Yeah, it was kind of funny. But you were a fake ghost hunter. I like it. Was Ghost Hunters a show then? No, this was pre. This was like late nineties. So you were just like you just were making fun of ghost hunters. We because there were ghost yeah. hunters around, and we were making yeah. fun of them. Essentially, awesome. we made fun of specific ghost hunters. It's a good Where, thing we didn't get sued. What kind of places did you film in? We did filmed. You use a little handheld. We did. We filmed around the UConn campus. Okay. Um, did you break into the depot campus often? No, no. Okay. We we did no breaking and entering. Good. But, Good. you know, we, like, we'd film in the library like overnight because it was open until yeah. 2 in the morning or something. Like the picture you just posted where the library looked very haunted yes. from that creepy portrait. Yeah, I wish, I wish, it didn't look like that then. But, yeah, no. Oh. It, the, the level A in the library, folks, hot tip, it's haunted. And uh, we do like friends' apartments and things like that. And, uh, you know, again, the running gag was that we were two complete idiots. Okay. And it would air – because they had to run it. Yeah. 
but they the, had no choice but to run it. They had no choice but to run it, but you know they didn't have to schedule it at a certain time, yeah. so it would air like really late on like Saturday nights. Two a.m. Everyone who saw it was a stoner. But Obviously. I'd be at Walgreens, like getting a prescription, and then like the stoner would be like, hey. Recognize? Like multiple times. Wow. Yeah. And we sent it to friends who lived in other parts of the country. We sent like VHS tapes, and they would give it to their public access stations. Oh, I love this. So we were on like public access in like North Carolina and Western Massachusetts. And was this, this was the stores or Mansfield public access that you did this on, or did you say Manchester? Manchester. We both lived in Manchester at the time. Okay. Yeah. We we're both seniors, I think. Wow. Yeah, so that was my public access adventure. That's great. If there's anyone listening to this who has old episodes of... full stop, if there's anyone listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) There's anyone listening to this who has access to episodes from the campus, the UConn Waterbury public access show. Yeah, probably does. I I will make a promise. I have episodes of (gasps) Mark and Tom's Paranormal Connecticut. but I want to see that. And I will will put them online if we can find UConn Waterbury episodes. I'm going to I'm going to facilitate this because <laughs> I need to see this. They were uh, yeah. I haven't watched them in so so long, but You'd be so embarrassed. You're oh my god, yeah. So hard. Somebody in the registrar's office is going to be really upset. <laughs> also, speaking of the internet, you can follow us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast. I still remember getting like our friend and colleague uh, Emily Nangari like getting mad that we picked that handle because we didn't ask because oh. she did social media at the time and so we were just like, "Yeah, we're Yukon Podcast." And she was like, "Really?" Yeah, because Yukon 360 was taken yeah, by a I'm squatter. Just, still mad about that. We had to. Hey, Elon, help us out. It. Oh, my God. Give us a hand, Elon. You know what I think is hilarious mm. on Twitter now? When you go to like where you write your tweet, it says, what's happening? And it has an exclamation point and a question mark. <sighs> yeah. Do you know anything about that? No, I just assume it's some dumb Elon thing. I, I think it's like, yeah, it's a very good encapsulation of what goes on on Twitter. It's like, true. What is happening? What is that? Yeah, that is true. You can also follow me at TJ Breen. Great Twitter content. You can and follow me at Julie Bartuco where I very, very rarely tweet. And we're still telling people about the UConn Magazine. Yeah, we are. Because it's out now. It's awesome. If you haven't seen it, go to magazine.uconn.edu. Check out not only the fabulous content, but also the five unique special commemorative covers. And you can buy mugs and have you bought anything? I got a sticker. My see my sticker. That's awesome. Yeah. My poster arrived of the five covers arrived yesterday or nice. Saturday. And Did then it look good? I haven't opened it yet. Oh, okay. I'm waiting for a tote bag and okay. a sticker sheet. Sweet. Yeah. So yeah, there's merch you can get. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, I put it on Twitter because I have a bunch of extra copies. Yeah. So I said like, hey, if people need, you know, they want a special issue or something, just, you know, just let me know. That was actually pretty funny because we've been trying to like figure out how to fulfill those requests. It was a mistake because like, <laughs> everyone asked a you. whole bunch of people have asked me. So now I have to fill all these requests. Well, Many of them I can just give them by hand because they're people yes. on campus. But if you want a special cover, <laughs> don't bother don't me. Don't email Keep us. it to yourself. No, we are really seriously looking to see if there's a way that people can order those as well. That'd but be awesome. You can get, if you just want the cover itself, you can buy that already. They're wonky sizing, but there is one that's the full-size cover. It just has a little border on it. Yep. Or you can buy a poster with all five, like me. Yep. Be like Tom. <laughs> start, your, start your own cable access show about <laughs> ghost hunting. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and thanks to Lana Hancock for producing this episode's interview segment. And uh, we'll catch you next time.